All right. Hey, welcome back. If you're new to the church, this is something that we do every week. It really helps facilitate the dismissal of our kids, and it gives us a chance to chat, to catch up with each other and meet folks that are new. So hopefully if this is your first time or within your first few times of visiting, somebody went out of their way today to say welcome to you. Uh, We try to be a welcoming church, and we're glad that you're here. Uh, We're going to move now into some teaching from God's Word. Um, I'll primarily be in the Psalms this morning, but I'm going to ask you to go to Matthew 16 and hold your place there. That's where we're going to finish our time, uh, and it's going to be the most... uh, Jesus-dense portion of the sermon, so it's really the part that I want you to look at and read for yourself and think through. Um, In the meantime, we're going to navigate today the second of four sermons uh, that are all about the spiritual practice of simplicity. So we're doing this as a church, if you don't know. We're working through the book of Mark about half the year, and we're taking the rest of the time that we use uh, for our teaching on Sunday mornings to work through some different spiritual practices or what you may be familiar with as spiritual disciplines. You may have heard of that term more frequently than spiritual practices. Um, we are speaking about spiritual disciplines, uh, not as something that we have to do if we want to be Christians, so that's an important distinction to make, not as something that can move us maybe further into God's favor, or if we don't do it out of God's favor, not at all. Spiritual disciplines are an opportunity. They are a chance that we have, if we want, to take advantage of the tools that God has given us through the power of the Holy Spirit, and when I say us, I'm talking about people who have given their lives to Jesus Christ and received in exchange his righteousness, his faithfulness, and his spirit that now inhabits our lives and empowers us so that we can do the things he said to do when he taught on the earth. But a discipline is us taking advantage of those opportunities God has given us so that we can live with God on a day-to-day basis. So as I navigate simplicity with you today, at the end we're going to get very, very practical And the threat in the room is that you may misunderstand me or you may misunderstand this church to be trying to tell you that you have to do these things. And if you don't do these things, you're not a real Christian, you're not good enough, you don't fit in here, and you should never come back. That couldn't be further from the truth. The truth is that through Jesus Christ, who lived a human life without error and died the death that we deserve, we have the opportunity to be made perfectly righteous in God's sight. The tragedy of modern Christianity is we often don't live like that's the case. Even if we've made that decision once to put our trust in Jesus on a day-to-day basis, the way that we live our lives and make our decisions often, not always, but often has very little to do with the teachings of Jesus or the model and example that he set for us. And so what we're trying to do here at True North is take Jesus seriously. When he says, follow me, when he says, do these things and don't do those things, we don't try to obey him because we're afraid of what would happen if we didn't obey him. We don't try to obey him because it's the best way for us to build prestige or score social points at church. We try to obey him because we love him. And my friends, if you don't love him, trying to jump past that love into obedience is a death sentence. It's going to be just another version of of rule keeping and religion, and it's going to beat you down because you won't be able to do it. The Bible is clear. Jesus himself is clear. Love for God is the starting place. And out of that love can come real and fruitful obedience. Simplicity is the third discipline that we've worked through so far, uniquely of the first two and and now this one. So the three total, simplicity is unique in the sense that it begins with an inward reality shift. The way that we see the world, our expectations, how we think, that changes first. And then our outward life follows after that. For that reason, uh, it is ripe territory for us to get into legalism. It would be very easy for you and I to hear the more practical sides of a teaching on simplicity like this one today and to decide to just do that stuff, to just go for it and try hard and go home and totally change our schedule wholesale and make a bunch of commitments that we probably can't keep to a lot of people who really don't care and then in a week and a half we're in the pit of despair again because we didn't do good enough and we weren't able to do it. The shame of that would be is many of us would say, well, yeah, I went to a church a long time ago and and we might say this in the future. I went to a church a long time ago and they taught about simplicity and I tried it but it didn't really work for me. If that's what you mean by trying simplicity is that you're just going to take some of the ideas that I'm going to give you at the end this morning and try to bolt them onto your life and hope that that fixes you, then you're not really listening. I don't mean that in a mean way. What I want you to understand is God has done some things and said some things that matter, that are important, and it'll be after you understand those things. It'll be after you've accepted the things that God says to be true as true that you'll have the opportunity to follow through and do some things differently. But I just want to caution you again today, I'll do this every week when we get together, that we have to resist trying to force our way into a deeper relationship with God by doing better things. That's not what a spiritual discipline is. A spiritual discipline is a way that we interact with our own character, our own inner life, 
And slowly, over a long period of time, probably more time than we would like for it to take, if we're honest, we begin to change. Our character morphs so that we become more like Christ. And we get the thing we wanted all along, but we get it indirectly. That's the way that a spiritual discipline works. So hopefully what I'll do for you today is I'm going to open the door a little bit wider than I did last week and talk about not just simplicity in general, but how do we interact with time? That's our big objective today is to deal with time, use of time, minutes, hours, days, our calendars, our schedules. How do we do that with a mindset of simplicity that looks like or sounds like or lives like the way that Jesus did, the way he spoke, the way he lived, the way he managed his own time? I want to go back just a small step and redefine for you simplicity. We, we did this a week ago. We said that simplicity is a mindset, right, because it's an inner change. I've said that to you already once today. It's a mindset of joyful unconcern. That sounds really good. Unconcerned for possessions, unconcerned for prestige, and unconcerned for personal advancement. Now, it could be more than those things, but I tried to give you a nice little alliterated list that would sit in your memory and maybe you could do something with. But I think in general, that hits most of the bases, right? What we own, do we own it or does it own us? We're going to talk about possessions in a couple of weeks or next week. Uh, prestige, our standing in other people's eyes, personal advancement, our own sense of self. Do we feel like we're succeeding? Are we doing enough for enough people? Are we making everybody happy? Are we checking all the boxes? Simplicity doesn't mean that we don't do those things ever. We don't own anything or we don't have any social standing or we don't ever advance. It means that joyfully we're not concerned with whether or not it's happening. It's no longer a helpful way for us to track if life is good or not. That's what we're trying to move toward. We want to arrive in the next two or three weeks at a point where at least we understand how a person could joyfully not be concerned with their possessions, not be concerned with advancing themselves, and not be concerned with prestige. In order to apply that, we should look at some of the things that the Bible has to say about time. And I think that there's a kind of a profound idea that we're going to see here as we look at two different psalms that the psalmist named David wrote, where understanding time and interacting with time has to do with another thing that we don't like to think about very much. So I'm not going to spoil that. We're just going to read here first from Psalm chapter 39. I'm going to read verses 4 through 7 to you. We'll have it on the screen for you as well. This is what David says regarding time and life and all the things it takes to follow God. He says, Yahweh, he's speaking to God the Father, help me understand my mortality and help me understand the brevity. If that's a $5 word for you, that just means the shortness, the fleeting nature, here one second and gone another, of life, he says. He goes on to explain what he means. He says, let me realize, Yahweh, how quickly my life will pass. It's probably not a prayer many of us have prayed. It's not very... Uh, central to the Western mindset to spend a lot of time considering when your life will end. He goes on in verse five and he says, look, like he's, he can see it. He's saying, look, you have made my days short-lived. My lifespan is nothing from your perspective. Surely, not just me, but all people, even those who seem secure are nothing but vapor. Surely people go through life as mere ghosts. Surely they accumulate worthless wealth without knowing who will eventually haul it all away. But now, Yahweh, upon what am I relying? You are my only hope. This psalm sets up something profound, a profound connection. We understand time. We know that time is just kind of like the, the basic currency we have to live life, right? We think in terms of minutes and hours and days and weeks and months and years and decades and millennia. But the psalmist, David, is saying really understanding time, not just knowing what it is, but being able to interact with it in a way that's healthy, that's godly, that's, we would go so far as to say Christ-like, that's his objective, is to view time in light of our own departure from this earth, to always keep death close to the front of our minds, not to be morbid, but to remind ourselves that time is a non-renewable resource. From the Bible's perspective, this is, a, this is a point made again and again and again. The prophets often speak this way to the people of Israel. Um, the psalmist again and again will speak to God. My life is short. My life is a breath. It's like grass. It's here one minute. It's gone the next. It's burned up in the fire. Oftentimes we interpret those things as extremely negative, but the perspective of the one writing in the Bible is actually positive. This is a major shift from our shared worldview. We spend an inordinate amount of money as a, as a nation every year on anti-aging or different things that try to roll back time. Oftentimes pop culture in our country is driven by the youngest people. The youngest adults we have often have the most influence and somehow seem to have enough money to impact the culture. It seems like the older I get, somehow the less money I have. I don't know if you've experienced that in your life. But we, we just shy away. We don't want old people in movies. We don't want old people in TV shows. We don't, our heroes are often not people with gray hair and wrinkles. 
There are people who look young. Their skin is still tight. Their muscles are big. Their skin is like gleaming with health and life. And we fight as hard as we can for as often as we can to try to keep ourselves within that bracket. And I, I don't think that's by itself necessarily always outside of God's plan. But I do think that it represents a kind of wholesale idolatry of youth. And I think what the psalmist is saying is not, God, make me old as soon as possible, but what he's saying is, is teach me to understand that there's something inherent to human life about it being short and that informing the way that I'm going to live. His dependence upon God, his reliance upon God is anchored and rooted in the idea that he's here one second and gone the next. It seems as though the psalmist's ability to not rely on himself is directly connected to this ever-present concept that he's going to die. And I think that that's probably fertile ground in many of our lives. We probably haven't done a lot of work to consider how the shortness of our human life would directly lead us to rely fully upon God. You remember if you were here last week that we looked at two New Testament passages as sort of basic um, primers on what it means to live simply. We looked at Jesus in Matthew chapter six, the Sermon on the Mount, and we looked at the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter four. In both places, our Savior Jesus and the Apostle Paul point people's mindset, they point the objective of life at simple living, keeping the kingdom of God first and foremost and pursuing personal character change. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4 builds on that by saying, think about things that are pure, things that are lovely, things that are beautiful, things that are worthwhile. I believe that's the same objective that the psalmist is driving us toward here, is Let me, God, weigh what it is that my mind lingers on. Let me have discipline such that I have some control or at least responsibility for what's going on inside of my head, the plans I make, the things that cause me anxiety, the places that I tend to put my time. It's not lost on me that the psalmist seems to think that every single person on the planet is like steam in God's eyes. I don't know the last time you saw steam, but you can't really look at steam for very long. You, it almost catches your eye for a second, you look over at it, and then it's gone. It's evaporated. It just goes up into the air, and it disappears again. I don't know about you. I don't think of my life that way. I, I would like to think that my life is a little bit more important than the steam that comes off my oatmeal in the morning. I, just, I feel like I have a little bit more to offer God than the bowl of oats and the milk in the microwave, but from David's perspective, the length of time that we're given is extremely short. And we ought to consider what we want to do with that time and how that time could become a resource and a tool given over to God for him to use if we want to walk in righteousness. This is interesting to me. If you could look back at just the close of this passage that we read, I want to point one thing out to you. He says, Surely people accumulate worthless wealth without knowing who will eventually haul it away. It's almost a little bit mean, isn't it? Like what if, you're, if you had a parent who was preparing to write their will and they were trying to decide who was going to have what, who gets the house, who gets the property, who gets the car. If your parents have all those things, that's not necessarily a given. And in the middle of that, you were like, I don't care who gets what, I'll just be here with the dump truck when everybody's done with it. Do you think your mom and dad would feel really good about that? Would that be encouraging? Oh, great, everything I have and everything I've worked for is going to go into a dump truck. Thank you so much, son or daughter, for encouraging me as I try to take care of my family at the point that I'm going to depart the earth. It stings a little bit. But it's also true, and I think what David's trying to do is push us, similar to what Jesus does in the New Testament, with an idea that's a little uncomfortable, a little bit invasive to our happy-go-lucky world where everything makes sense and works out the way that we want. The bottom line is, for you, you could create the most ironclad will anybody's ever had. You can decide who gets what. You can write it all down. You can have a lawyer make sure that it goes the way you want. And once you're gone, it is inevitable that half of your stuff is going to wind up carted off in a series of garage sales for less and less money every time. That's just how it's going to go. Your favorite pictures, your grandmother's clock, that heirloom piece of jewelry, eventually somebody's going to say, I don't have room for this, I don't have use for this, and it's going to go away. The psalmist is not trying to tell us not to engage with the world or to have anything. I think he's speaking about a joyful unconcern, that there's an opportunity for you and I, because God is who we rely on, to not worry about where that stuff's going to go, to not waste our time on anxiety, to not waste today planning for a tomorrow that we won't be here for and can't control. How do we do that? The psalmist seems to think that it's anchored in understanding how limited our time on earth is going to be. David's conclusion sounds exactly like the same conclusion that Jesus reached, the same conclusion that Paul reached, that pursuing God's kingdom is really the only way to live if you want to live a life that's worth living, that God is our only hope. But it begs the question to me, what if you don't believe that? What happens? What's really at risk here? If you were to say, no, I don't really need to rely on God, I'll go to church, I am a Christian, I think, 
most of the time. Other people think I am, at least, and that's what matters most to me. And so I'm going to go to church, and I'm going to walk through the walk, I'm going to do the dance, and at the end of my life, I will have everything I wanted, and I will have made whatever money moves and decisions I had to make to succeed and advance and level up and grow my house and grow my income and grow my number of cars and my hobbies and my kids and all of that, and at the end, I will be happier than everybody else will be. Well, I think believing that way whether you know it or not, actually leads to a kind of interior deterioration. And that's a weird way to say that, but it will wear away at your soul to love things more than God to the point that it will change you. Uh, one of my favorite books that came out in 2022 is by a guy named Mark Sayers. He's a good author. He wrote a book called A Non-Anxious Presence, which is where I robbed today's sermon title from because it's a great book and you should read it. Uh, in that book, Mark Sayers talks about what happens when any group of people, be it a family, a business, a nonprofit, a church, he, he'll use the word network. I'm going to read you a quote from him in a minute. He uses the word network. But he lays out for us what happens when people choose not to deal with this kind of constant Western modern anxiety that gnaws at us. Because we are. We're consumed with what we own and what we don't own that we wish we owned. We're consumed with leveling up at work. We're consumed with advancing ourselves in the eyes of other people. And what does that do to you over time? And what does that do to an organization like a church over time? Mark Sayers answers that question. I want to read this to you. This is, this is what is at risk for us. If we say it doesn't matter, simplicity sounds nice, but I could never live that way. I'm going to keep running the rat race, and I'm just going to try to add a little Jesus around the margins. Mark Sayers says this. As a network is swamped by chronic anxiety, which is his word for that kind of like, I'm always nervous about something. Not, we're not talking clinical depression that's based on chemicals. We're talking about people who are living and thinking and acting in a way that's causing them to be a nervous wreck the consequences of their own actions, okay? He says, when that happens, that network, you can think a church, is marked by reactivity. If you don't know the difference, you can respond to things or you can react to them. Responses are usually good, reactions are usually bad. He says, those within the system or the church no longer act rationally, but rather high emotion becomes the dominant form of interaction, that means we're all either really excited or really sad or it's the end of the world or it's never been better. And we live this way. We reach a tipping point as a group where this is like the new way you have to talk and act and live or else you don't fit anymore. He says the system's focus then changes. It becomes directed toward the most emotionally immature and reactive people in its midst. That can happen to a church where a church stops helping people and people who are mature and able to lead lose their ability to do that and the most emotionally immature in the room are the loudest voices and therefore they steal all the attention and then what happens? He says those who are more mature and healthy begin to adapt their behavior. They change to appease the most irrational, to appease the most unhealthy and this creates a scenario where the most emotionally unhealthy and immature members in the system become de facto leaders. What does that mean? That means you'd never vote them into leadership, but they make all the decisions. The least healthy, the least mature people scream the loudest, and therefore everybody else goes, ah, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do with a, with a 55-year-old toddler. So you win. You're in charge. You can do it. I don't think I even care that much. And healthy people begin to change. They begin to surrender what's healthy and good and right that they've already learned, and they give up that influence to people who have a long way still to go. It begins to shape the emotional landscape where the focus becomes the negative behavior of those immature people and what those immature people see as the negative behavior of others. If you've never been in a situation like this, imagine someone who's doing something wrong, maybe on purpose, maybe not, it doesn't matter, but they're panicking and they, they just are making worse and worse and worse decisions. And as soon as you take a step toward them to help them with that, all they do is point their finger at other people. They have no ability to hear what you're saying. They have no ability to reflect, to look within themselves, to take a second and pause and slow down and think about, do I even want to feel the way that I feel? It's just always everybody else's fault all the time. It's like that Spider-Man meme. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where there's three Spider-Mans and they're all pointing at each other? Or it's like the end of that office episode uh, where they do the theater, the dinner theater thing, and they're, they're all having a standoff in the office like two and a half hours after they all should have gone home? Yeah, like, we do that to each other. I don't know, maybe you can't see it Maybe it's not in your life group. That's good. But this is a threat to us. If we are the kind of people who want to live just like the world, who are willing to stay sick like the world is sick because it feels nice, then we're going to reach a glass ceiling. That's what the whole book of Ephesians is about, is about breaking through that glass ceiling together and unifying around the cross of Christ, rallying, surrendering our weaknesses, surrendering our immaturities, and growing together. A lifestyle of simplicity 
creates for us, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself, so I'm going to just stop right here, but it, it creates for us the opportunity to live rightly and to do rightly to each other, to ourselves, to other people. But as long as we are allowing this to breed and grow in our midst, and I'm not trying to indict you today, I'm not saying this is where we are as a church, I'm just saying this is, this is real, this can happen, then eventually we either have to decide, is this going to work? Are we going to stand our, our ground and, and push back against people that want to be the loudest, meanest, angriest voices in an attempt to help them? Or are we going to just surrender because that's really uncomfortable and nobody wants to have to have those conversations? Mark Sayers goes on to say that churches uniquely can become a place where real Christians don't even fit anymore. He says, it becomes nearly impossible for the healthier members of a system, you can think a church, or for the leadership of that system to see the bigger issue. For us, that's the gospel. It can become impossible for a church to see the gospel anymore, to tackle systemic issues like people who are homebound and don't receive any care, or women who are not married and need help at home and we don't see it and we don't know about it and we can never help because we spend all of our time appeasing people who are whining and crying. Mark Sayers says that the focus continues to be brought back to the latest crisis and the feverish emotional responses that swamp the network. That's what can happen to a church when a group of chronically anxious people obsessed with the what-ifs of the future and the pursuit of possessions and the pursuit of prestige and personal advancement, when they get together and begin to make the rules for one another, sometimes they get past the point of no return. Where even a church could be a place that a genuine follower of Jesus wouldn't fit anymore. That simple lifestyle of just simply, yes, my yes is yes, my no is no, I'll go where God sends me, I'll do what he says, becomes either so radical or so offensive because it doesn't immediately run to the loudest screaming voices in the room and try to fix all their problems, that you find groups of people that call themselves churches and don't think about Jesus and aren't about the gospel and are just these kind of like funhouse mirror mazes where everybody's just reflecting everything back on everybody else and none of us are looking to Christ to lead us. I believe that's the point of Psalm 39. I think what the psalmist is trying to say to us is that if we would like to become the kind of people who are not chronically anxious, if we would like to have something to bring to the table when we enter into something unique like the local church, it starts with understanding that our time is a non-renewable resource. It gives us a healthy, grounded, anchored sense of, I love you, but that problem that you're kicking and screaming about isn't the kind of problem that you're, you're acting like it is. It isn't as big as you think it is. I'm not mad at you. I'm not going to shame you. I don't have to belittle you, but I only have so many minutes till I'm gone, and I can't just sit with you in this pity party right now until you decide that I've appeased you. I'm going to encourage you and lead you from out front and say, come with me. If you want to get away from where you care about those kinds of things, step into life with Christ. 51 Psalms later in Psalm 90, David builds out this very practical theological perspective even further. He says again to Yahweh, the Father. He says, you've been our protector, the people of Israel, through all generations. Even before the mountains came into existence, even before you brought the world into being, you, you were the eternal God. You made mankind, excuse me, you make mankind return to the dust, and you say, return, O people. Yes, God, in your eyes, a thousand years are like yesterday that quickly passes, or like one of the divisions of the nighttime, like just like the time between 6 p.m. and midnight. That's a thousand years to God. You bring their lives to an end, and they fall asleep, and in the morning, they are like the grass that sprouts up. In the morning, it glistens, it sprouts up, at evening time, it withers, and it dries up. Yes, Father, we are consumed by your anger. We are terrified by your wrath. You are aware of our sins. You even know about our hidden sins. Throughout all our days, we experience your raging fury. The years of our lives pass quickly like a sigh. The days of our lives add up to 70 years or 80 if one is especially strong. But even one's best years are marred by trouble and oppression. Yes, they pass quickly and then we fly away. Who can really fathom the intensity of your anger? Your raging fury causes people to fear you. So, God, teach us to consider our mortality that we might live wisely. David talks in this psalm a lot about how mad God is at people. Why is he doing that? Is he trying to scare you? No. I think he's trying to help you understand that even when you think you have had the best, most productive, most self-achieving day ever, that essentially at the core... You're wicked, <laughs> and, and God knows that you're wicked, and he sees all the wickedness that you hide that nobody else can sense or see, and so even if you get 80 good years because you're a really physically strong person, those years are full of days that are full of you going against God's will. So what is the solution? To know that your time on earth is fleeting, to rely upon God, as he said 
at the close of the verses that we read a few minutes ago, so that you can do what? So that you can live wisely. Not that you will automatically live wisely, but that you stand a chance. The implication would be not considering the number of your days, not considering your own mortality, would mean that you probably never reach the point where you're able to truly live wisely. There is something uniquely specific about living the spiritual life from the perspective of your deathbed that the psalmist seems to think is good and right and positive and necessary for those of us. If we can consider our own mortality, this is how we learn to live with wisdom. What does it mean? What does it mean to consider your own mortality? How do you live from the perspective of the end of your life instead of letting the end sneak up on you as you waste away your days on things that won't really matter in the grand scheme of things? Well, I think that that answer comes to us from Jesus. And this brings us to Matthew 16, where I asked you to turn earlier today. Jesus was interacting with his disciples. This is one of my favorite vignettes in the whole Bible between Jesus and Peter. I'm very excited to talk to you about it today. Jesus began to show his disciples, which is an interesting way of saying that. Not teach them, but show them. I don't know if he's acting it out. Is he drawing in the dirt again like he did that time with those Pharisees that wanted to stone that woman? I don't know. But he's showing them that he's preparing to go to Jerusalem and to suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the experts in the law. That he would be killed and that then on the third day he would be raised. So, verse 22 tells us, because Jesus did these things in direct response to him, laying out God's plan and what God would have Jesus do, Peter pulled Jesus aside, which is embarrassing if you're teaching a group of people and somebody comes up in the middle and says, hey, can I talk to you for a second? And you're like, well, I guess. So, he, so Jesus, okay, he goes over and stands with Peter. And what does Peter do? Peter rebuked Jesus, who is God. Okay, he said, God forbid it, Lord. Jesus is like, me? Forbid it? I just told you I'm doing it. What are we talking about here, Peter? What's going on? We've got to go back over and look at the dirt drawings again. This is me. This is Jerusalem. There's a cross. This is what I'm doing. He says, this must not happen to you. He's telling Jesus, no, no. I love you too much. You're worth too much to me. You're too good. I've never heard anything like you teach. I've never seen anything like the way that you heal and love people. You can't die. And you can't let those guys kill you. Of all the people, those idiots that won't leave us alone, they're the ones who get to win? No, no. God, is, God could not be in that. No, you, you can't do it, Jesus. And Jesus claps back. He turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Which hurts your feelings if you're Peter. It doesn't feel very good. It probably is especially surprising because you thought you were just pleading with Jesus to protect himself to stay safe, to stay alive, all the things that people are supposed to want most in life, right? Be comfortable, Jesus. Do this thing you're good at. You're just now building a following. Don't ruin it. Think of what this could mean. At this point in Jesus' life, there's a group of women who are very successful financially who are helping fund his ministry. I don't know if you know that that happened in Jesus' life. They follow him around. They help him have a place to live. They help him have food. It's very possible that our brother Peter is going, we're just now making bank. We're just now turning a profit, Jesus. What are we? You can't die. I'm not going to let you die. No. Jesus says, you need to get behind me. You need to stand behind me. Now, is that just an insult? No, I think it's literally an explanation that Jesus is leading Peter. He's saying to Peter, that attitude is real. I hear it. It's wrong. It belongs behind me. You have some following left to do, Peter. I don't need you to lead me. I don't need you to protect me. I don't need you out in front of me. I'm good. This has been the plan all along. I'm just trying to let you know so you don't freak out. And I'm glad I did because here you are freaking out anyway. So get behind me, Satan. And then what does he say? You have become a stumbling block to me. You're tripping me up. You're, 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 gonna, you're, gonna, you're threatening this whole thing that God is doing with that attitude, Peter. Because why? Because you are not setting your mind on God's interests. But on man's interests. You're not stupid, Peter. You're just Satan. You're not, you're not dumb. You're just wrong. You're, you're, you're weighing the scales with, with, with human hands. You're, you're, you're bringing exactly the perspective I would expect you to. But you're wrong. I've been teaching you God has a different way. The way that this thing works is I die at the end of it. And then what does Jesus do? He puts Peter on display. He turns back to all of his disciples and has a little case study with an object lesson named Simon Peter. He says, if anybody... If anybody wants to become my follower, which is crazy to say to a group of people who at this point have been following Jesus for almost three years, to say to a group of people who have been following you for three years, who've left everything behind, to say, if you want to become my follower, what does that mean? Were we not already? We're not following you now, Jesus? 
He's redefining discipleship right now for these people who are supposed to have gotten it and somehow have not gotten it. So if you're here and you also haven't gotten it yet, that's okay. This might be the point when it sinks in for you. He says, if you want to become my disciple, here's what you do. You have to deny yourself. And then you have to take up your cross. He could have said my cross. That would have made more sense. He just finished talking about that he's going to go die in Jerusalem. Now he's implying that they're all going to have a cross. They, they, it's, it's built into the system that you have to carry this electric chair around on your back until the time that somebody decides to flip the lever and use it against you. And then what happens? And then you can follow me, he says. That's the way. Right now, Peter, you're out in front of me. I don't need you there. I need you behind me following me. So here's how you do that. If you want to follow me, you deny yourself. Right now, you're worried about yourself. You're thinking about what will happen to Peter when Jesus is gone. This is obviously close to home because what does Peter do when Jesus does depart? He denies him. Jesus knows what he's dealing with here. He knows exactly who he's speaking to. So he's saying, Peter, you need to get behind me and follow me. And in order to stay back there and not run ahead again, I recommend a big heavy wooden cross on your back at all times. I think that would be the most helpful thing that would prevent you from getting out in front of me again and keeping you behind me, following me. He says, whoever wants to save his life, which if we're honest, all of us would raise our hands and say, that's me. Whoever wants to save his life, he has to lose it. Ouch. But whoever loses his life because of me will find it. Will find what? His life. The life that Jesus has to give to that person. The life that that person has actually been looking for all this time. The life that they could never build for themselves. The life that they've tried as hard as they can to manufacture on their own and then protect. Jesus is saying, put a cross on your back and you'll get everything else you need. I'll give you life. I can do that. I'm prepared to do that. For what would it benefit a person? Here's the greatest question Jesus has ever asked anybody in human history. What would it actually benefit you if you gained the whole world but you lost your life? That's a great question. You should write that on your bathroom mirror and start and end your days that, that way. What would, it, what would it actually get you if you got everything you ever wanted? Jesus seems to think that that would cost you something and that the thing that you would have to give up to get what you want wouldn't be worth it. Nobody else in your life is telling you that. Nobody else in your life is trying to humble you. Nobody else in your life is telling you to slow down, do less, don't work as hard, don't give as much of yourself to your career, don't check your bank account as often, don't plan for the future, don't go on vacation, don't buy nice things that you don't need, don't flaunt your money, don't flaunt your status. Nobody's telling you that. This is part of why simplicity is a spiritual discipline <laughs> because it's hard work. It's getting in the gym with Jesus and it's trying to find a way to embrace this mindset which is nowhere else in the world except right here on Jesus' lips. Even Peter, I'm telling y'all, if anybody had a chance to get it right, it was Peter, okay? You're never gonna get more chances than Peter got. The transfiguration, walking on the water, healing his mother-in-law, every single miracle Jesus did, Peter is there. And still, at the slightest mention of Jesus' death, Peter says, no, 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 you can't do that. And Jesus says, yes, I'm going to do it. You're in my way, get behind me. What would it gain you, Peter? What would it actually gain you if you got everything you wanted? If I stayed right here with you and I never died and we were just best buddies and I lived in your mother-in-law's house for the next 80 years, what would it gain you? You'd lose your life because you'd get what you wanted on the side of eternity and you'd give yourself up to get it, Peter. I'm giving you something new. I'm giving you something different, something that at a DNA level is unlike anything else you've ever seen in your life. He says, what can a person give in exchange for their own life? What else is there for you? Well, we would argue that we've been giving lots of stuff in exchange for our lives, in exchange for our minutes and our seconds and our attention spans and our ability to focus on one thing at a time. Time for us often is always slipping through our fingers. We haven't mastered it. We're not great stewards of it. It's overwhelming. It gives us anxiety probably more than anything else ever does. We get so frustrated when anybody interrupts us, even for a minute, and our plans have to change. Or maybe you're type B, but I'm type A, so that's how I interact with time. It's hard. I don't like it. I don't want to live this way. I don't want to just carry a cross around all the time. That doesn't sound very good. That's certainly not the sermon that was preached the night that I gave my life to Christ. Nobody said, hey, if you're really excited to carry a giant wooden cross around on your back for all time, come down and you can pray this prayer and God will lay this giant thing on your back and you'll just carry it. We don't often think of our lives that way. Now, I don't think that Jesus' intention is for us to be heavy laden and burdened, but I think what he's trying to say is, is that a cross-shaped life is the kind of life that will walk forward into God's kingdom. You've probably heard this passage taught before as if carrying your cross meant you're gonna suffer sometimes. It's gonna mean that when you're a senior in high school and you're doing see you at the pole, some of your buddies are gonna laugh at you behind your back because you prayed at 7 a.m. That's the cross you're bearing. I don't think so. 
I don't think Jesus is saying anything at all about the daily suffering of human life. I think he is specifically echoing the exact sentiment that came from Psalm 39 and Psalm 90. I think he is saying, if you want to follow me, you do that from the perspective of your own death. You think about the fact that you will be gone. Peter, here's the anchor that keeps you behind me where you belong, a giant weapon of death on your back. That's how you follow me. That cross dragging in the dirt everywhere you walk for the rest of your life gives you a fair chance of staying behind me and following me and understanding what this whole thing is about. One of my very favorite authors is a missiologist named Leslie Newbigin. You've probably never heard of him. If you've heard Tim Keller preach, you've heard a lot of Leslie Newbigin because Keller loved Newbigin. That's how I find out about him. I want to read you a very short quote from Leslie that reinforces this point. I love this. This is one of my very favorite things to think about in the world. Leslie said, Jesus rises from his knees. He's talking about the last night of Jesus' life. He gets up from his knees, praying with his disciples, and he calls them, and he says, rise, let us be going, and then he goes before them. He doesn't just send them to the wolves. He's in the front, but where does he go? He goes to the cross, and there is the pattern for the leadership of the church. You want to get away from an anxious, a chronically anxious group of people in a system where the least mature, loudest voices rule the day and nobody can get anything done towards the objective because we spend all of our time appeasing one another. Leslie says that Jesus says, and I agree with both of them, you go to the cross. You set your eyes on the end of this thing. Not that you can't wait to die. Not that you're looking for a chance to die. We're not pursuing martyrdom. We are living with the perspective that our world does not have, that everything we're doing will come to an end. In a hundred years, all new people on the earth, all new people, you'll be gone. What will you do with your days? What do you want to spend your time on? What would God lead you to spend your time on? How do you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? How do you think on things that are beautiful and pure and worthy and lovely? How do you become the kind of person that when Jesus says, get up, we're going to the cross, you don't pull a Peter, but you say, okay, I was expecting this. This is what I thought we were gonna do today because you told me that this is the shape of a life that follows you. So how do we do that? Well, we go to the cross with Jesus and that brings with it all kinds of countercultural decision-making. Okay? I don't have time and you wouldn't enjoy it if I did it, so I'm not gonna go through every single facet of your life and tell you exactly how to simplify everything. Remember, this is an interchange. Embracing this concept that you need to remember that your own death is coming would be a huge step forward for most of us and maybe that's as far as you need to go. But to get a little bit practical with you, with our last four or five minutes here, if you want to begin to think about how you could simplify your life, if you want to kind of get your fingers in there and untangle the big jumbled Christmas lights that is the way that you experience life, that's what I often think of is just this mess of cords and does it even work? I don't know. I got to pull it all apart. Three categories that I'll offer you as a help, as a way to think about how am I spending my time? Do I feel like I am trying to spend my time in the way that God would lead me to? And how do I even know what God would want me to do in the first place. So the first category is this, distractions. A lot of what we do, a lot of how we spend our time is on distractions. Here's my idea for distractions. We want to eliminate distractions. We want to say no so that we can say yes. Because a lot of times we say no because we already used all our yeses up on stuff that doesn't matter. Because time is a limited, non-renewable resource. We said yes to a whole bunch of junk that has zero consequence, doesn't help us, doesn't help anybody else, and then a real opportunity to help or serve or love comes across our radar and we go, I could never. Well, you could, but it's gonna be 15 minutes less on Candy Crush, and it's gonna be 10 minutes less on Twitter or X or whatever Elon Musk calls it next week. The, the, social media, you're gonna pull back from that. And it's gonna be maybe not checking scores every 10 minutes when your favorite baseball team is playing, but maybe just like checking the box score at the end of the game or not chasing down every ad that comes across on your phone or not having to interact with every single comment on every social media post because you get that little endorphin rush and you want to keep doing that. I know I'm picking on a lot of technological things, but that's the majority of where our distractions come from. Most of us don't just walk out into a field and look at the clouds for a couple of hours. Those days are gone. <laughs> the human race, unfortunately, has advanced itself to the point where that's pretty much incomprehensible. How we waste our time now is bits and pieces, minutes and moments here and there. And we do that early enough in the day, often enough, that when a really good opportunity to do something worthwhile comes across, we have to say no, because we have nothing left to give. We have allowed ourselves to be distracted to the point where we've been neutralized. Now, do I think Satan's plan is for you to have an iPhone? No, I don't think your iPhone is inherently evil. 
But I do think that Satan knows a lot about how people work. He's been working on people for a really long time. He probably knows a lot more than all of our psychologists do together. And I think he knows exactly what it takes to pick and pull at your day and your time to the point that you become useless in the kingdom of God. So do I think that it's inherently moral or connected to your salvation on whether or not you waste time? I don't. But I do think that if you want to focus on the righteousness of God and the kingdom of God, you're going to have to have a little bit of discipline to do that. It won't be natural. And you're going to have to say some no's so that you can follow up at the right time with some yeses. Knowing when I'm interacting with a distraction helps empower me. It helps me to say no to things that naturally creep into my day in 10 to, minute, 10 to 15 minute increments. Like I said, checking sports scores, doom scrolling on social media, no, no point. I'm not looking for anything, I'm just there. That's just what I'm doing, I'm not even thinking about it. Watching YouTube videos, sending other people YouTube videos, uh, standing in Tyler Wolf's office doorway, watching him watch the YouTube videos that I just sent him from down the hall. These are real distractions from my life. These are things I need to be disciplined about, and I'm not. And I don't want to be disciplined because I'm trying to work my way into God's love. I know I say this to you like 15 times every sermon that we talk about disciplines, but it's because I know our natural tendency. I don't want you to just sell your phone tomorrow morning because you think that's how you become a better Christian. I want you to embrace the idea that you do have some choices and that the Spirit of God will empower you to make the kinds of decisions that would be helpful, and that you can do that starting right now, and you can do it on a small scale, and you don't have to get it right every single time, but that it will matter. It will end up looking like you taking steps toward Christlikeness. The second category of how we spend our time is on priorities. So we want to say no, so we can say yes, but we also want to keep the main thing the main thing. What do I mean by that? You need to ask yourself, what is your life all about? Could you, if you had to, define your life in one or two sentences? What is it about? And I'm not saying forever and always. I'm saying in the next six months to three years, do you have a good idea of what a bullseye would be for your life? Have you asked God about that? Have you prayed and listened? Have you sat with him in quiet and waited for him to shape and mold you? Maybe for you, it's homeschool right now. And it's nailing homeschool. And nailing homeschool doesn't mean producing little geniuses. It means being up on time and disciplining yourself to eat and making sure your lesson planning is done, even if it means staying up 10 minutes later and skipping the end of the show that you'd rather watch. It's these kinds of small decisions that begin to build into our lives the third piece of the pie. I'm not going to tell you yet. We're going to get there. But that is a really important thing that we want to achieve as Christians. But for now, for priorities, we want to be thinking about the kingdom of God. We want to be planning for the kingdom of God. We want to be thinking about God's righteousness. We want to be planning for God's righteousness. Once you know what the main thing in your life is, you can begin working to keep it in the main position of your plans, right in the crosshairs. We say no to distractions so we can say yes to priorities. Now, take this with a disclaimer, okay? Jesus is the best example that we have of doing the will of God the Father, and sometimes that means that he spent all day long being interrupted by people, and he never really did anything other than just respond to their questions and their needs. I don't know if you know this or not, but nobody is ever late in the Bible more than Jesus is late to stuff because people interrupt him. They get in his way and he stops and he slows down. But why can he do that? Because being on time is not the main thing for Jesus. Meeting the needs of people is the main thing for Jesus. And so if meeting the needs of people is the main thing, now I rebuild my world and my worldview such that being on time doesn't matter anymore. And I tell the people who love me and depend on me, I will do everything in my power to be on time. If right now picking up our kids is part of the main thing, then I'm going to be there as best I can every time without excuses. I'll try. I'll get it wrong, but I'll try. But if that's not the main thing, I ought not just arbitrarily choose to be early for no reason. I ought to tell myself there is a way to live that puts me in sync with the things that God has told me are most important. And that might mean being late because I want to stop every single time I see a person in need. I want to take every phone call. I want to answer every text. I want to be present every time somebody needs something. Again, I'm not telling you to just go for it. You've got to pray and talk to God about this. But once you know what the main thing is, keep it in the middle. Fight for that. Say no to the things that aren't the main thing so that you can do the parts of the main thing that you planned and those occasional opportunities that sync with the main thing that you didn't plan and didn't know were coming your way where you want to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Finally, we want to think about margin. You can't if you're not there. You ever thought about that before? Great plans, great aspirations, big ideas, never going to happen if you can't show up. And why? Why wouldn't you be able to show up? Because you live your life maxed out. You steal time from sleep to get more stuff done, or to not get more stuff done, but to just be awake and doing something. Scrolling and looking and listening and talking and thinking and reading and whatever. And maybe those are fine things, but again, we want to get the distractions out. We want to keep the main thing the main thing. And if we can do that, the main thing will give us margin. 
will have room in our lives to adapt and adjust and not blow up at our children because they weren't ready at exactly 9.35. That's when we leave the house every day. You knew that. These are the kinds of positions we put ourselves in because we have no wiggle room at all. Zero. Why? Why do we lose our wiggle room? Well, because we don't know what the main thing is, so we're trying to do seven or eight main things. and We're killing ourselves. We're sacrificing every good thing about ourselves in the name of just trying to be more and better for everybody and because we're distracting ourselves to death. So there's an order here. I'm not starting with margin and leading with that and trying to push you to just make more room and then you'll be a better Christian. Again, we work through this with a process, but start by identifying what those distractions are. Be honest with yourself, be honest with your good friends, your roommates, your spouse, whoever it is that would be able to look into your life and say, I do think you waste a little bit of time. I'm not mad at you, but yeah, if you're asking, the answer is yes. Then work together with those people who love you and know you to identify what's that main thing gonna be. What is my target objective in the next six months to three years? And give other people a voice, some input on that. And then, that'll give you margin. You'll have room to do things that you never thought you had the ability to do. Um, so that you know, for me, this is way upstream. This is very hard for me. Margin, very, very hard. I'm not good at it. I am not preaching to you from a position of expertise. I am sharing an idea that I also need to hear about and need to work on. Um, I tend to live in 30-minute increments. Like, I literally schedule my day in 30-minute blocks. And I like to do work in the work blocks. And I like to be at home in the home blocks. And I like to eat in the blocks where I schedule a meal. And when I was first married, uh, I was pretty rigid and religious about this to the point that if Andy ever wanted to be spontaneous or do something fun, I would often reject it even if I had nothing really going on because I just wanted to stay right in the middle of that plan that I had made. Because for me, plans take the decision-making out of my life. It makes it easier to just be. I already planned it. I already thought about it. I know it's all going to work out in the end. And so it's laziness in a weird way. That's my confession to you. Scheduling for me is laziness. Scheduling for me takes the humanity and the connection out of my decision-making, and it protects me from having to do things that are hard. Now, thankfully, God gave me Andy, and Andy doesn't think in 30-minute blocks, like most human beings don't. And I have learned through her long-suffering and patience and good example that those 30-minute blocks are fine. If they're a security blanket for me and nothing goes wrong and my life never goes off the rails, then yeah, probably at 12.30 on a Monday, I should be eating lunch but I have to be able to surrender and lay those things down. It's good to have a default to know what I should do if nothing's going on. I've gotta live my life as it lives though. And that ends up meaning that about one hour a day, those 30 minute blocks work out the way that I thought that they would. And that's an area where I have to keep growing. I have to keep growing my mindset and my perspective. Think about margin for you. What would it look like for you to get outside that rigid framework that you work in or to begin to take some ownership of time so that it doesn't overwhelm you and frustrate you and lead to this kind of chronic anxiety that we want to avoid? Let's say, for example, that you left for church next Sunday 30 minutes early. You know what might happen? You might see somebody on the side of the road, and they might have a flat tire, and you might uniquely, peacefully, have the capacity within yourself to go, I have all the time in the world to stop and help this person, because I got up early, and the kids got up early, and we ate breakfast early, and we went to bed early last night, so we could do that in a healthy way, and here we are, and we're going to help this guy. And that guy says, this is so cool that you helped me. All these other people with all these church bumper stickers drove by me, and none of them paid any attention to me, but you did, so I'm going to go to your church. And so you guys get here right on time, and I preach the sermon of the century, and that person gives their life to Jesus, they move to Africa, and hundreds of thousands of people meet Jesus. It could happen. I don't think it will. I hope it does. No, that's not likely. You know what's likely to happen if you leave 30 minutes early? You'll get here 30 minutes early, and you'll sit in a seat for 30 minutes. And what you might do, because you don't know what the main thing is, and you're totally addicted to distractions, is you might just pull your phone out and ignore everybody and do the same thing you were going to do in your bed for 30 minutes before you got ready for the day and just consume empty social media stuff. And then church starts, and you go through your life, and nothing changes. But what if you were eliminating distractions? And what if the main thing was the main thing and you made room for that margin in your life? And what if something like the local church was part of the main thing for you? What if you believed that this is a uniquely transformative group of people, a network and a system that can do what nothing else can do, which is lead you further into your relationship with Jesus? Then that 30 minutes might become you encouraging people that you haven't seen since last Sunday. It might mean simple kindness. Not that you have to tell everybody your favorite Bible verse, but you just check in on people around you. You notice that somebody is struggling to get the chairs out, so you're able to throw a couple chairs on the floor. You didn't sign up for the team. It's not your job forever, but you had margin so that something that does matter to you, you could give more of yourself over to it. So many of the things that the Bible demands from Christians, service, self-sacrifice, these things require that you actually show up, that you gain the capacity, and capacity is another word for margin. So this is what we want to do. I believe that living with the idea of our 
impending, not in a mean way, but it's true, our coming death reminds us that our time is a limited resource. As the psalmist said, as Jesus says, put your cross on your back and never forget, it's coming. It's coming. It's always coming. And your time is going to run out, so how do you want to spend it? Not on distractions. You want to say no so you can say yes. You want to keep the main thing the main thing, so you do that collaboratively. You pull people in on that and give them a voice in what is my life going to be about. And then you build margin in. And you do it slowly. If it takes you weeks or months or years, that's okay. As I've told you many times, following Jesus and becoming like Christ takes exactly one human lifetime. No more and no less. So you're not going to nail this, but you have the opportunity to step a little further into obedience that's rooted in love. Because if you love God and God has told you what the main thing is, you want to do that main thing. You want to spend and burn every resource, every minute, every relationship that you have focused on and working toward that main thing. So distractions, priorities, margin, my hope for you this week is that you'll spend a little bit of time considering your mortality so that you can live simply with Jesus. I think that's a very real possibility. Let me pray for you, and then we're going to sing together. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you, God, for your grace. As we always say when we begin to work in your name, thank you for grace, God. Remind us, please, make it so clear that it's like annoying for people to have to hear me pray this every week, that we need your grace and mercy, that our salvation is only by grace, which is freely given to us, by faith, which is also freely given to us, not a thing we produce, not a thing we can manufacture. Guard and protect us today, God, from going home and trying to prove ourselves to ourselves or anybody else. Teach us wisdom. Teach us the, the, the way that you often do, God, quietly, secretly, privately, within our inner self. Adjust and massage and manipulate and change and, and warp and bend our character, God, to be more like you. We're open to that. We've heard today about a kind of lifestyle that feels pretty darn far-fetched from most of our reality. And so we're going to need some reshaping, some refurbishing to happen inside of ourselves if this is going to become a possibility for us. I pray, God, today for everybody in this room that you would at least give us serenity inside, peace for the next 10 or 15 minutes as we worship you. Let us be wholly present. Maybe we haven't done that for a very long time. Present here with you, trusting you, praising you, telling you what you mean to us, God. Build that love for us so that we may become people who are obedient. We love you, Father, and we trust you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, amen. Let's stand and sing our final song.